Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. On Tuesday, March 8th, a day recognized annually as International Women's Day, activists from the Shut Down Berks Coalition rallied outside of Berks County Residential Center, demanding that Berks County commissioners shut down the prison. Protesters expressed solidarity with the incarcerated women currently housed in the facility through handwritten postcards and other actions to advocate for the prisoners in the facility. After years of organizing and resistance on behalf of the organizations that make up the coalition, the facility, which was once a detention center for immigrant families, was shut down in February 2021, and all the families were released. But in January 2022, the Biden administration and ICE repurposed the site to incarcerate immigrant women, despite major backlash from activists and community members. The Biden administration has increasingly turned to alternatives to detention, such as ankle monitoring bracelets and mandatory phone check-ins for families that may have been previously detained. However, single adults are still being incarcerated by the tens of thousands. As of January, 20,886 immigrants were being held across all of ICE's facilities, according to TRAC, a nonpartisan, nonprofit data research center affiliated with Syracuse University. Adriana Torres Garcia, program director with the Free Migration Project and member of Shutdown Berks, said last month that she and her fellow members are very frustrated and disappointed that the federal government had 11 months to close the center while it was empty but failed to do so. We're calling on President Biden to let these women go and shut this down, Torres Garcia said. This is the same facility where a staff member was convicted for repeatedly sexually assaulting a 19-year-old mother in 2014. ICE detention facilities are notorious for sexual violence against detainees. This week, we share a conversation with Brian Doliner. He's been on the show before, talking about the program Parole Illinois. In this episode, he talks about Guardian RFID, a company that produces handheld devices that allow guards to do head counts for inmates electronically, via scanning. As he explains, various technologies are being used to expand the carceral net. They go on to talk about the use of government funds, including the CARES Act, to expand the various forms of e-carceration. Doliner believes that it is not a coincidence, but an intentional effort to refund the police in the wake of the George Floyd protests. He offers great insights into covert ways of shoring up police budgets using federal money. Thank you so much for joining us today on Kyline. It's a pleasure to be with you and to have you here with us today. Could you just maybe start us off a little bit talking about how you got into prison abolitionist work and journalism? Yeah, thanks for having me, Kyline. I really appreciate the work you do. I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Kansas. You know, you don't get much more Midwestern than Kansas and moved out to Los Angeles. I lived there for about seven years in California 
And so I moved to Illinois and in 2005 was, in, you know, uh, in Inglewood, Chicago, which is a, a, not even predominantly, it's a total black neighborhood. <laughs> you know, so I, you know, my best friend was beat up in front of me uh, by the Chicago police. So I saw, you know, things up close. And at that point it became very personal. I finished a PhD at Claremont in Los Angeles. I moved to Urbana-Champaign in Illinois, where we have an independent media center and a local newspaper called The Public Eye. And I immediately got involved in community journalism, citizen journalism, whatever we call it, and started writing stories. You know, it was an easy entry point for me in the independent media movement. As it turned out, we had particularly brutal anti-Black police force in Champaign. And um, I started writing and telling stories, hearing stories from the community and trying to use my skills of research and writing to try to bring some justice uh, for what Black folks were experiencing. That led to uh, eventually in 2009, Champagne police shot and killed Kiwan Carrington, a 15-year-old Black youth, and a year long of protests and uh, writing several articles, foying, investigating that incident. You know, that's how I kind of cut my teeth. And since then, I started writing more national stories. I mostly write for Truth Out, writing stories about prisons, police, immigration, ice raids, and the like. One of the reasons we wanted to have you on today is uh, you have a new piece out in Truth Out on a company called Guardian RFID. Could you maybe explain to us just a little bit who is Guardian RFID, how the story came about, and how it fits into uh, what people are calling e-carceration? Yeah, we'll have to shout out to my friend and neighbor here in Urbana, James Kilgore, a nationally known writer, abolitionist, activist. James tipped me off to this company called Guardian RFID, um, a little known company, but uh, on the rise. They produce uh, little handheld, what are basically uh, cell phones uh, that have apps on them that are now enable jail guards to go around and do head counts, you know, count people at the jail. And they make little nameplates, ID cards, bracelets, that through this RFID technology, they can just go around and scan people like barcodes. And so they use these to go around and account people. What's typically used historically is just pen and paper, a clipboard by COs, correctional officers. And um, so there's, uh, a kind of burgeoning market for companies like Guardian RFID to digitize. And in some ways it makes perfect sense. We've done it in libraries, we've done it elsewhere where things are, you know, if they, you know, you're not compiling you know, buckets of paper, but you are collecting data that's downloaded onto a computer, onto a server, onto a cloud, everything is managed digitally. And so it's kind of the next step or a next step in corrections, as they call it. And so Guardian has been selling these 
their, their, their phones, their apps, their technology to dozens and dozens of mostly jails across the country. They seem to target uh, jails. And you know what we know, there's some 2 million people incarcerated in the United States. You know, there's some 10 million people that cycle through jails. So it's actually a much larger market than the prison market. You know, every time somebody is entered into the jail, they get a new ID card. That's a new potential market for companies like Guardian RFID. So they've been around for about 20 years. They're based out of Minnesota, uh, around Minneapolis, and they have contracts all over the country. In doing research, I looked through 20, 25 sites, jails where they have contracts. You know, you can go to the Guardian RFID website and they promote their success stories. And so I got a lot of information there. And then just you know, looking up news stories of cities that had bought into this technology, counties that have purchased the technology, many small ones, but also they have large contracts like the one in Dallas, Texas, that's a million dollar contract over three years. And these are becoming more and more common. I think we could talk more, but there's a way in which now federal COVID relief money is flooding communities with federal dollars in which county sheriffs are purchasing this kind of technology. So I think we might predict in the coming years to see a whole explosion this phenomenon of incarceration, communities are going to be using federal dollars to purchase. And this is, you know, a totally going on with the knowledge of the Biden administration, which has largely been hands off in this transfer of money and in the acquisition of police technologies. So we're going to see, I think, a, a growing expansion of incarceration in the form of this kind of technology, in the form of electronic monitoring, um, which James Kilgore has documented well. And, you know, he, he has a new book out understanding e-carceration, where he talks about this in full. But there's other technologies. Uh, even Biden himself has touted things like a shot spotter, which is uh, gunshot detection devices, um, kind of audio speakers that they plant in black and brown neighborhoods uh, are, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment that they're installing in neighborhoods like Inglewood, South Side of Chicago, uh, all throughout the country. More and more, I think we're going to see this technology as some kind of hyper solution to a problem that we know the solution for, which is to decarcerate, to empty out jails. Bail reform, pretrial reform is growing and people are fighting for. At the same time, there is a recalcitrant response by the authorities to double down and you know, shore up their power among the carceral state. If you just had to spell out for, you know, abolitionists, like what we should be worried about, about this particular version of e-carceration, this guardian, RFID, how would you just kind of summarize briefly what we should be concerned about here? Is it just an increase in the size of the carceral state or are there other things just in terms of data and prisoner management that we should be concerned about? Yeah, well, it's a scenario of pigs at the trough, you know, of companies trying to privatize a public function and making millions off of it and not really providing any real solution to the harm and damage that mass incarceration has done for decades in this country. So there's a way in which simultaneously these companies like Guardian RFD has this hyper militaristic language. Correctional officers, guards are called warriors. You can look at their website or on their Facebook page and see this. They talk about their technology as equivalent to striking down ISIS stronghold or they compare it to waterboarding. This really hyper-militarized language, and at the same time, they promote this kind of what James Kilgore calls carceral humanism. 
where they came up with, you know, a response to COVID. They developed a, a nonprofit, what they call the Warrior Foundation, which is distributing masks to guards across the country. Or they'll even make little posts on social media celebrating Black History Month. So they are, you know, constantly repackaging themselves to seem humane. At the same time, they are a brutal force. You know, we should watch out for this language, this kind of what my friend Kay Whitlock calls the carceral con going on, this kind of bipartisan agreement to make small ticky-tacky reforms, which only further deepen and ignore the crisis. You know, there's a bait and switch game going on with the money in the face of reform and protests going on since Ferguson, since George Floyd, since Breonna Taylor. You know, so we have to, I think, really be on the lookout throughout community by community. These companies are coming in and selling their services. Now with federal dollars coming down, I think you're going to see more and more of these companies in our community. So COVID has really changed the game when it comes to prisons and jails, incarceration, e-carceration. So if you look at visiting in jails, the authorities have totally clamped down all in-person visits and you know, most prisons have opened up, but in my town here in Urbana-Champaign, the jail is still not allowing for in-person visits. So what you have to do is you have to go onto a website that's monitored uh, and, and owned and operated by Securus, which is huge, one of the largest prison profiteers. And Securus pretty much owns Illinois when it comes to prison phone calls, video visits from prison, or video calls, because they're not really visits, you know, you know, it's not like you're, you're visiting your loved one in prison. So Securus, is, you know, you have to now set up and, and pay for these video calls, which cost money, which they're making millions off of. They're giving commissions or kickbacks back to county counties, so the counties are also profiting off of shutting down in-person visits and promoting these Securus sponsored uh, calls. Um, so, you know, there's, um, there's also, there's a recent story out how prison education is changing in the pandemic. Pale grant money is expected to be coming down the pike. And so um, now tablets have been passed out in uh, jails and prisons and JPay is promoting educational programs through the tablets. And now JPay is looking to make money off of the Pale Grants through providing education inside prison. It's another one of these carceral cons that's becoming more and more common. Um, maybe the most outrageous one recently is this attempt to digitize mail that there's companies like Smart Communications, MailGuard. MailGuard has a contract with the Federal Bureau of Prisons to digitize the mail um, in Pennsylvania, Florida, and elsewhere. This is being done by Smart Communications, and they're taking the mail that sends inside, making photocopies, digitizing it, and then providing it to people inside. So if you think about, you know, a daughter personalizing a letter to the father that's then uh, scanned and, and, and uh, or digitized, uh, you know, typewritten out um, and then given to somebody inside how much, you know, that really depersonalizes that really important contact for somebody inside. It's, it's really cruel what's going on. The authorities are saying this is cutting down on contraband that's distributed through the mail. And if you talk to anybody inside, they'll tell you that contraband is coming in through the guards. And there's been studies throughout the country that have shown that even in COVID, while 
you know, there's been no visitations in prison. There's no, you know, family members visiting. There's still a, a constant flow of contraband into the prison that's coming through, not the mail, but through the guards in the form of drugs, cell phones, um, and all kinds of other contraband that's coming into the prisons and into jails. So digitizing the mail is not going to stop the flow of contraband. It's only going to siphon money to these prison profiteers like Smart Communications and MailGuard. And this is a way in which we can, throughout communities all across the country, we can fight this. We talked a little bit about the, the humanitarian, carceral um, humanitarianism that they're, they're using. The mail digitizing service, if I'm not mistaken, in the, in the Deep South, it's a lot of sheriffs that who are using that. And that's something I wanted to ask you a little bit more about. One of the things I really thought was interesting about your Guardian RFID piece was how you really center the, this Ruth Wilson Gilmore idea of parasites. And then you kind of highlight that the Guardian is really getting its hooks in rural areas and through sheriffs. Could you just talk a little bit about maybe why the parasites are attracted to rural areas and maybe not just Guardian, but maybe in some of these other kinds of parasite programs like mail scanning? Why, why are they drawn like moss to the sheriff slash rural flame mm-hmm. to mix a metaphor? Yeah, sheriffs are powerful figures in counties throughout the country, um, especially, you know, medium and small size counties, uh, cities, areas. Sheriffs are powerful political figures and, and nearly untouchable and almost uniformly Republican. You know, I can, I can speak in, in my own area of Champaign-Urbana here. We are surrounded by a larger county um, that doubles the population and um, the politics of the outlying county area is heavily Republican. Uh, although we have a fairly liberal college town here, all of our county positions historically have been Republican because of the votes that come from the county. And um, you know, if, 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 if this happens in our nice little Midwestern college town, um, you can imagine what it's like throughout the South, which, which, which is you know, uh, heavily red territory. So sheriffs are, are powerful figures. They're elected officials. They have seemingly no oversight by any county boards, commissions, um, and they operate independently. They make decisions about what comes and goes, what contracts they cut, and they are, uh, you know, they have really little oversight from any county commissions. And so they kind of do whatever they want, these sheriffs. Um, and I don't know, maybe it's part of our old Wild West mythology in the United States uh, of the sheriff who, uh, you know, with the gun and a badge. Um, and it sort of, you know, defends the public. And so, um, you know, and we still see this uh, on TV, on Netflix and movies, um, the white man with the cowboy hat and the rifle. Then you have these companies that are sending around their salespeople to go around and make these pitches to the sheriffs to set up meetings and promote, you know, they have a few talking points that they're going to save money um, provide accountability. This is a big selling point for Guardian RFID. They prevent lawsuits, you know, legal liability. So, you know, this became uh, an issue in Texas, as I write about, after Sandra Bland died in a jail cell in Texas jail. Uh, there was a year later, they passed the Sandra Bland Act, 
provided more accountability for jails. And Guardian RFID went throughout Texas and sold its technology, saying that um, if you have a, a badge and uh, an app phone, that guards could go around, conduct suicide checks, and that this would prevent suicides. But we've seen time and time again, this has not prevented suicides in jails. <laughs> and um, you know, guards still find a way uh, to sit around on their butts all day. Um, you know, and there's been other incidents, like, like I write about like the Jeffrey Epstein scandal. It was like another case of guards sitting around, fiddling around on their computers, um, online shopping, uh, while Epstein apparently committed suicide in his jail cell. Um, so there's, you know, sheriffs know about this news. They don't want to be in the newspapers. So they can see a good reason to find a budget. And uh, increasingly, we have federal money provided by the CARES Act or through um, the American Rescue Plan passed by Biden, which is flooding communities with millions of dollars. And so sheriffs are seeing a real opportunity here to um, buy this technology and uh, you know, sell, serve a purpose, prevent, you know, ultimately prevent a lawsuit, which is one of their primary concerns. So you know, I found this out uh, when I was investigating in Texas. They portioned off some money from the CARES Act to, to uh, purchase their equipment from Guardian RFID. So the Guardian salespeople are going around talking to sheriffs, telling them, how this technology is going to benefit their office, um, the benefit to the people there, people inside um, is much less of a concern. And, you know, for people, you know, behind bars, you know, already under intense surveillance and scrutiny, you know, this is just adding one more layer of surveillance, of control over their total lives. And this is touted uh, by, companies like Guardian RFID, that they are creating a, a constant total surveillance environment. Um, and so there's other companies doing this through cameras, through body cameras, um, all these little ticky-tacky technologies that they're using to monitor and surveil people incarcerated. And if we can imagine that they're doing this on the inside, um, we can also imagine that they have bigger plans of doing this for people on the outside. And so you have uh, electronic monitoring, the best case, case example, most widespread example in the use of technology for monitoring um, black and brown, poor white people in their own communities, in their own homes and making them prisoners in their own homes. You're, you're touching on something right now that uh, I want to kind of pick up on and give you just a chance to kind of expand on, which is the way that the kind of CARES Act funding is being spread into carceral institutions. And I know that's something that kind of bridges your guardian RFID piece and then some work you're doing now. Could you just maybe talk a little bit about how, you know, from your kind of investigative standpoint, you're seeing the landscape post CARES Act and kind of post-pandemic, post-COVID, I guess I should say? Yeah, well, for the past uh, six months or plus, I've been monitoring how ARPA money is being spent. As the American Rescue Plan Act passed soon after President Biden came into office. That is some $1.9 trillion of federal funding. That's like what's been touted as the largest federal expenditure of money in local communities since the New Deal. 
Um, so it's not just once in a generation, it's like once in a century opportunity. So all this money is coming to local police, to sheriff's office, to state governments. So in Alabama's the best case example where the governor has been working for a few years to build three new prisons. And that was stopped by activists on the ground. Now that plan is back on the table thanks to $400 million of ARPA money that Alabama approved for spending on the three new prisons. In comparison, that's five times what they're planning to spend on hospitals. And there's seemingly no even attempt to try to rationalize how this is addressing pandemic or what this has to do with COVID relief. Clearly, you would want to spend more money on hospitals than prisons. But this is just an effort to follow through on the state's pet project of building these three new prisons um, in response to a Department of Justice investigation and lawsuit. So there's other cases in Ohio. The government wants to, the state government wants to use a big chunk of money for police. Locally, in counties and in small towns, uh, they're building jails. Um, I've talked to people in Maine, big fight in Lafayette, Alabama. And um, in towns big and small, there's an attempt to, and in fact, in my own town here in, in Champaign-Urbana, um, this became <laughs> most immediate for me. The county board approved a $20 million jail project that's been some 10 years in the making. And of that $20 million, they want to take 5 million of ARPA funds to put towards that jail. And so, you know, I've been kind of watching this roll out. And in addition to jails, they're using the money and this was touted by Biden about using the money, the ARPA money on, on shot spotter technology, on, light, on automated license plate readers. And there's a whole host of uh, SWAT gear that's being purchased. Um, I, I talked to folks in activists in Fresno, California, where they're buying uh, squad cars, undercover squad cars, uh, SWAT rifles with uh, night vision and all kinds of fun stuff for the police. Um, so, uh, you know, it, we just have to look at the timing of this and how this is coming just shortly after the protests um, over George Floyd's killing. Um, that this is not just a coincidence, but an effort to, as I say, refund the police um, in response to nationwide calls to defund the police um, and real actions taken from Minneapolis to Austin to cut police budgets. So this is a way in which um, local sheriffs, police chiefs are shoring up police budgets um, with federal money um, to, um, you know, fortify the carceral state. I love that idea of the thinking about what's happening in the present as a refunding of the police and thinking of the ARPA as really kind of a covert um, slush fund for that refunding. I mean, I think that that's a really powerful framing. That's, I think I found that to be very, very useful. I've not, not heard anyone do that before. I think there's also a real opportunity here for us to get our own hands on this federal money. You know, there's efforts here. Uh, I have friends doing reentry work who are getting reentry, uh, who are getting ARPA money. There's a chance to fund violence interrupters and in communities. I talked to folks in South Bend, Indiana, who are starting a crisis intervention center so that police can, rather than taking somebody to jail, they can drop them off at the crisis center where they can get diagnosis, treatment uh, for addictions, for mental health issues, 
um, that they're not going to get at the jail. And um, it's something we've been calling on for a long time is for you know, non-police related um, response to incidents in the community. So um, I think this is a chance for us to struggle all over community to community for uh, real alternatives to incarceration. Um, at the same time, we're pushing for decarceration. We have to, um, as Angela Davis and others say, you know, as abolitionists, we need to present, you know, bold and fresh ideas. We need to be visionaries and and saying what kind of world we really want and providing real solutions to the problems that exist in our communities. We'll have a link to his article on our website. This has been KiteLine. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.